Listen to WGN Radio's newest podcast, Behind the Badge, Illinois, hosted by David Hochberg. Behind the Badge, Illinois, views current events through the eyes of Illinois law enforcement leaders. Tune in. Visit WGNRadio.com slash Behind the Badge. The wonderful world of Disney. Yeah, let's see how wonderful it is when Mickey Mouse becomes public domain. It's uh, Dave Plyron for Bob Surratt this morning. January 1st is Public Domain Day. Works from 1928. Will be open to all as our sound recordings from 1923. Professor Jennifer Jenkins is the director of Duke Center for the Study of Public Domain, and she joins us this morning to break it all down. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You are the expert in all this, and I want to ask you first and explain to our listeners, like, what are the guidelines and timelines and laws behind how works eventually end up in the public domain? Well, those guidelines and timelines have been changing over time, but for yeah. the works we're talking about that you mentioned, the copyright term is almost a century, is 95 years, and then the next year, they go into the public domain. So that's why next year in 2024, we're getting works from way back in 1928. Yeah, they keep expanding and expanding and, and changing the dates over the years, because I, I guess when you think about when film and music first came around, you know, nobody knew how long that was going to last, even in... The world of television production, when they started, or radio shows, they thought to themselves, well, who's going to listen to this again? But it really has become part of our pop culture, and we still listen and watch these classic movies and listen to this music from back in the day. Yes, for some of it, anyway. And so, um, you know, the 95-year term is great for the works that we're still listening to from that year now. But actually, by the end of 95 years, sadly, the vast majority of copyrighted works um, aren't in circulation and aren't being listened to anymore. So, for instance, I would be delighted if anyone was reading my stuff in 100 years. But sadly, you know, after a certain period of time, a lot of culture is no longer in circulation. But um, this year we are celebrating some of those works that that, that still are attracting our imagination 100 years later. Yeah, there's essentially five common ways that an item arrives in the public domain that either the copyright has been expired, which means also it was not uh, the, co- the copyright owner failed to follow renewal rules. They failed to affix the required notice. It's, it's simple mistakes in many cases that puts these things immediately into the public domain. Yes, that was true back in the day. So those requirements are no longer part of copyright law. So your audience would be glad to know that now uh, anything that you create is copyrighted the minute that you fix it in a tangible medium, put it down. But for works that we're talking about back in the day, uh, works from the 1920s that we're talking about now, you had to publish it with a copyright notice, and then you got 28 years of protection. And then to get the full 50-year, 6-year term back then, you had to renew after 28 years. Um, and then the successive term extensions extended that to 95 years. So we used to have these requirements. Legal nerds called them formalities, and then they removed these requirements more recently to get a copyright. I have a listener who texted in from 262. How did NBC get a hold of It's a Wonderful Life? Because that was a movie that literally it was a renewal issue where Republic Pictures didn't renew the film, and then everybody was showing it, everybody was selling it, but they did get yeah. they, they did get it back. 
Yeah, that's such an interesting story. And so the film went to the public domain, and that's initially, I mean, it's hard to believe, but initially the film was a flop. And then it inadvertently well, it went to the public domain due to lack of renewal. And then what that meant is that stations could play it ad nauseum during the holidays, and it became a hit. It is a wonderful movie. Um, but then, interestingly, after the Supreme Court case, the movie was pulled back into copyright, um, not because the, the film itself um, was copyrighted, but because the short story on which it was based and the musical score was still copyrighted. And so it's a, it's a really interesting copyright and public domain story, and I'm delighted that your listener texted about that. Yeah, I mean, there's that, that, that place, it was playing everywhere, I remember, at, at some point. Right. But NBC has an exclusive right, NBC Universal, yep. to, to air that every year. And it's funny, because that film... Uh, was not even very popular back when it was aired right after World War II. And it it really got into people's homes by the copyright fail. I mean, that's the real Isn't reason. That interesting? Yeah, it's, it's really how it got be, to become a popular movie. All right, let's talk about some, for some categories uh, of some of the works that are going to public uh, domain. And let's start with books and plays, some of the things that are more familiar to our listeners. I'd be happy to. And so we're looking at books and plays that were published in 1928. Um, and so we actually have two books that were banned, as people talk about banning books now, of course, right? So back yep. then, the unexpurgated version of Lady Chatterley's Lover, Naughty Naughty, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was originally banned uh, for obscenity. It's going into the public domain, the original version. And also um, Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness when it was initially banned as well. It's a novel exploring lesbian love. It's also going to the public domain. Um, as an English major, one of my favorite books, Virginia Woolf's Orlando, yeah. will be public domain. Uh, we have some original German works, so the original German version of The Three Penny Opera by Brecht, and also the German version of All Quiet on the Western Front going into the public domain. And I guess I'll feature some children's books just to end with. Um, we have The House at Pooh Corner which is the first appearance of the Tigger character bouncing into the 100-acre wood. Um, And also for cat lovers and children alike, uh, Millions of Cats, which is what it sounds like. It's a picture book about lots and lots and lots of cats. Uh, That's also going to be public domain next year. I was looking at this, too, that uh, it was Peter Pan or The Boy Who Wouldn't Grow Up because it was not published for copyright purposes until 1928. So some of these works, even though... Uh, they've been around for a very, very long period of time, unless it was published and then copyrighted. That's why some of these really, really old works have hung around for quite some time. Are you sure you're not a copyright professor? <laughs> yeah, so it's the arcane, it's the, the arcane rules of old copyright law. So yeah. Peter Pan, the play, had been performed since 1904. Right. But it wasn't officially published for copyright purposes until 28, and so that's why it's not going into the public domain until next year, even though the novel from 1911, that's already public domain. Right. But we officially get the text of the play uh, next year. So, yes, that's another one of the, the, the familiar works entering the public domain. All right, Jennifer, stick around, because I want to get into films, and, and the big conversation that's out there everywhere is about Mickey Mouse and how that works. So we'll talk Uh, More with Jennifer about what's going into public domain. Yeah, that's one of the uh, the Charleston, one of the original versions of Charleston going to the public domain this year. It's Dave and for Bob, and we're we're talking to uh, Jennifer uh, from the Duke Center uh, Public Domain. Jennifer, uh, I want to talk a little bit about film with several asterisks, qualifications, caveats. Mickey Mouse <laughs> in his earliest form will be indeed the you know leader of the band, films, books that will become public domain 
And, you know, Disney solidly and separately holds a trademark on Mickey as a corporate mascot, brand identifier. Law forbids using the character deceptively fool customers to thinking the product is from the original uh, creator. But this is a big one that's been kind of talked about for years. Yes, this is this, this is a big one. And the reason that is deeply symbolic and has been talked about for years in this context is because if I was going to give you the best poster child use case for just how great the public domain is, I would probably say Disney. Because if you look yeah. at their wonderful movies that, you know, we all love and watch as children and adults, you know, The Lion King, based on Hamlet, um, you know, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Pinocchio, The Three Musketeers, the list goes on and on. All of these works were remakes that were Disney-fied and wonderful remakes of public domain works. And so on the one hand, Disney is the best argument for just how great the public domain is, but at the same time, they've also been pretty well known for supporting extension of the copyright term, which diminished and eroded the public domain. So the most recent copyright term extension that we talked about earlier is often derisively referred to as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act. Now, that overstates Disney's actual role and influence in the legislative process, but they were definitely a proponent of copyright term extension. And so that's why this long-awaited symbolic entry of Mickey and Minnie Mouse 1.0 into the public domain is so significant next year. But you mentioned trademark rights, so I can talk about that if you want. Well, so, I'll, t- I'll tell you, um, we got a couple of uh, textures that came in that said, why does someone's creation ever go into public domain? If I create something, it should always belong to me or whoever I designate it to. Uh, what's your answer to that? Oh, I completely understand that because, you know, we think about that often. I own it, something's mine, but it's actually part of the design deliberately of the copyright system. Because if you think about it, the whole point of copyright law is to support, promote, and nurture creativity. But if everything was copyrighted forever, it would be very difficult to create anything without stepping on someone else's copyright. Because we don't create out of thin air, we don't create ex nihilo, and in order to create, you might be using characters, elements, plot lines, stories, etc. from previous works. And so if you look all around you and think about, you know, where creative works came from, right now people are loving the, uh, the, the film Maestro about Leonard Bernstein, right? What's one of his most well-known works? It's West Side Story. What's that based on? Romeo and Juliet. Why was that legal? Because Shakespeare's works were never copyrighted. And so actually, you know, the framers, when when they wrote the Constitution, they put the words limited times in the Constitution and said that copyrights have to last for limited times. Why did they do that? Because that's part of how copyright nurtures creativity. It gives creators important rights, very important, that last for a certain length of time, but then those rights expire and those works go into the public domain where they can feed future creativity. So it's actually part of the design of our system. Interesting. Um, here's another one from uh, 847. There's a song, and I might chop it up here. Placer de Amor by Juan Martini has been retained by his descendants since the 1600s. I found that out when my band was doing an album. So are there exceptions to those rules on how things were handled? Uh, I'm not aware of that one. I'm going to have to look that up when I'm back in front of my computer. Okay. Um, there, there are some, there are some weird arcane things uh, with uh, works that are in this category called unpublished works, mm-hmm. where the, the clock doesn't start ticking till they're officially published. So even though the work technically existed a long time ago, but um, every work published 
1928 published or earlier is public domain in the United States. And I should mention, we're only talking about U.S. law. One of the wonderfully complex things about copyright law is the terms can be different in different countries. And so in the U.S., we're looking at all these works published in 1928. But in other countries, they're looking at a different set of works that are going in the public domain next year. Um, So we talked about Steamboat Willie. Also, um, the circus directed by Charlie Chaplin goes in the Singing Fool, Mm -hmm. uh, directed by Lloyd Bacon, follow up to the jazz singer um, in old Arizona. Mm -hmm. 100% all talking film featuring singing cowboys, which is way, way yeah. back in the day. <laughs> but there's a lot of music, too. There's a couple different things. There's sound recordings and musical compositions. What's the difference between the yeah. two of Sure, and um, you, you, the, the Charleston excerpt that you played is a great illustration of this. So um, copyright law treats musical compositions, think of the, 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 the lyrics and the music that you might see on a piece of sheet music differently from the recording of that underlying composition. So take Charleston, for example. Um, the Charleston song was written in 1923, and so the underlying song went to the public domain in 2019. Um, but copyright law treats sound recordings differently, and so next year we're getting the recording of that underlying song, uh, which uh, goes, uh, all the recordings from 1923 go into the public domain in 2024. So isn't that wonderfully complicated? But the point being, so the underlying composition, say, you know, I write a song and I can't sing, which is true, and you perform it. I got the songwriting rights, and that's the composition rights. They're different from the rights that you're going to have over your recording of my song, and the timetable for those with older works is different. So, yeah, musical compositions, Animal Crackers was a musical starring the Marx Brothers. Uh, there was, it was a mm-hmm. book written by George Kaufman and Maury Reiskin, but the lyrics and music were by Bert Kalmar and Harry Ruby, so that's how that's covered. Mac the Knife, original German lyrics, uh, goes in a Sunny Boy, uh, you know, from the film The Singing Fool starring Al Jolson. So there's a ton that goes in there. But then the sound recordings, as I played the Charleston, that was James P. Johnson, uh, his version of that. But there's a lot of blues. It's a ton of blues music um, yeah. that's, that's hitting the, the public domain as well. Yeah, there were some really talented blues women from back in 1923, and so recordings from the likes of Bessie Smith and Ma Rainey are going into the public domain, which is very exciting. And for, for, for your listeners in a romantic mood, among the compositions going to the public domain are Cole Porter's Let's Do It, Let's Fall in Love, and the song Make and Whoopi. So um, I guess people were feeling frisky back in 1928. I guess so. Uh, in 1922, though, so just last uh, last year, there was a new law called the Music Modernization Act. You, can you explain what that's all about? Sure, I'd be happy to. So it did a number of things. It actually passed unanimously, believe it or not, at Congress in 2018. So what that law did, that's the reason that we're getting these recordings from 1923 next year, because it used to be that federal law only covered sound recordings from 1972 forward. And so we didn't know what the deal was with recordings from before 1972. Um, and so with the Music Modernization Act, Congress set a timetable for pre-72 recordings to enter the public domain. And so that's why we're getting 1923 recordings after they get a term of 100 years, and then they go into the public domain the next year. So yeah. at 100 years, 1923, plus one, 2024. Yeah, and you can go to the Library of Congress National Jukebox uh, to listen to all these old recordings. Fascinating conversation. Professor Jennifer Jenkins is the director of Duke Center for Study of the Public Domain. Uh, thank you for joining us, Jennifer. That was a really great chat, and have a happy New Year to you. It was fantastic talking to you. Thanks so much to you and your listeners, and happy holidays to everyone. Thank you. Same to you.